got the great privileges that we have of being in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Those that are believers, we're in Christ. But not only are we in Christ, the blessing that's already immense of just knowing that salvation in him, but now we get to partner with the Lord in ministry. God is uh, doing an incredible work in the world and, and his work is saving people. And yet the amazing thing is that God calls us to partner along with him in the ministry. What ministry is it? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 told us that it's the ministry of reconciliation. And as verse 19 of chapter five says, we've been given the word of reconciliation. That means that we ourselves being in Christ, we've experienced that reconciling work of God. He has sent his son into the world to draw us to himself, to pay the penalty for our sin, to set us alive now in him. And so we've been reconciled, but now he entrusts us with that wonderful word of reconciliation to go and share that with the world as well. That, and that amazes me and it, and it excites me to realize that the creator of this universe who's made all things has not only saved us, but now says, guess what? We're gonna join together and partner together in seeking to bring about this ministry of reconciliation in the world. I mean, you all have a pretty lofty calling here because you're called as... As it said in verse 20 of chapter 5, you're called to be ambassadors for Christ. You're called now to represent the Lord, and an ambassador represents another country, another person in a foreign place. This world is not our home. We're living in a foreign land right now. We're citizens of heaven, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3. We're citizens of heaven, but we're called into a foreign land with a message as an ambassador to proclaim this ministry of reconciliation. And so as we move into chapter six, and chapter six really just flows right in from chapter five, they're really connected together this first part of chapter six. And in fact, you know that, um, you know, when the Bible was written, the early manuscripts, they didn't have chapter breaks, they didn't have verse numbers. I mean, imagine what that was like to tell somebody, turn to, you know, that place in the book of Matthew, they got to like unroll the scroll and whereabouts is that? Well, it's about, you know, 20 feet down, right? Like just kind of find around there. That's what we want to, I mean, that would have been difficult. So translators came and they added chapter breaks. They added verse numbers. And so it makes it very easy reference for us to kind of find certain things, but they don't always get it right. In fact, uh, chapter seven of Second Corinthians, the first verse really is connected to chapter six. So whoever was doing the chapter breaks in second Corinthians must be the new guy or something. It's like, you know, let's, oh, it's Henry again. He's blowing it. Oh, he'll get there. He'll learn. He's new. So uh, we see some interesting breaks here, but I, I want you just to, again, remember what we looked at last week at the end of chapter five, our calling, but now tie that in with what Paul said at the beginning of chapter six, because we're going to look at now the marks of ministry. And we're going to look at these things here, the calling of ministry, the conditions in ministry, the capability for ministry, the character of ministry, the care in ministry, the concerns for ministry, and the clarity of ministry. So chapter six, again, verse one, we then, 
as workers together with them, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I've heard you. And in the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So chapter five spoke of that great ministry we have and how we're called to be ambassadors for Christ. That's why Paul says, we then, here at the beginning of chapter six, we then, tying it right in, we then, as workers together with them. Did you catch that? That's pretty exciting that we, again, are not just called out of a place of sin and death, but we are called to something. And we are called to be ambassadors for Christ, and we're called to be workers together with them. Because God's at work in the world, reconciling the world to himself, and he's choosing to use us and to speak through us. All that are in Christ, this is amazing, and I want you to catch this, the incredible privilege and joy and blessing we have now to be ministers of that reconciliation, to be workers together with him. And Paul also says, we also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's tying in the thought that we read in, in verse 20, chapter five, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Paul says, well, we also now are pleading with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's so important here because the grace of God is everything. And I pray that you understand the greatness of God's grace. We're saved by grace. We continue on in grace. And I pray that you continue to grow daily in the incredible grace of God, that you begin to see the grace that you've been given by the Lord and that you begin to exercise and walk in that grace one to another. Grace is everything for us. Because you see a lot of people when they hear the gospel or when they, when they hear the good news, they begin to kind of think, okay, well, that's great and all, but you know, I've got to play my part. I've got to do my role. And, and, and we can oftentimes think we've got to contribute to our salvation, that we've got something to add to the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what religion is all about. Religion is saying, you've got to reach God by what you do and how you live. Whereas Christianity says, no, we could not achieve that. God came down to reach us where we were at and he did the work. Jesus says it on the cross, it is finished. The work is complete, my friends. And it's all complete by the grace of God. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We didn't deserve it. And that's the problem for us sometimes because again, like I've said oftentimes, that default position of our heart is oftentimes religion. Because we think, well, man, I gotta, I gotta earn this. I gotta contribute. I can't receive something for free. It's a difficult thing sometimes, isn't it? We feel when someone gives you something, we've gotta pay them back. And we feel that way with the Lord sometimes that we got to contribute to our salvation. But Paul says, I don't want you to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't think that you need to add to it. And that's what was happening in the church of Corinth where they had false apostles in the church and they were beginning to, to criticize Paul. They're beginning to corrupt the, the message a little bit saying, oh no, no, you, you need to do this. You need to come under this kind of works centered, you know, salvation. You got to earn your way. Paul says, don't receive the grace 
of God in vain. But this also, I believe, has a secondary kind of reference to it in the way that Paul has been called, and he's calling us all now to be fellow workers with him. Because that word vain, when he says, don't we see that grace of God in vain? That's the, the Greek word kinos. And what that can mean is empty-handed. Don't receive this grace of God in vain. Well, what do you mean by that? What, what does that have to do with anything? Remember, Paul's saying, okay, you've been saved. You're new creations in Christ. And you're new creations that have a new drive and a new desire to serve our creator. So don't let this grace of God now be wasted on a life that just wants to get by. In other words, live for him, be used of him, be a vessel for him to work through. Don't allow the greatness of God and the grace of God to be wasted or in vain. Don't come to the Lord. Remember, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we're all gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That, that's not for salvation. That's the Bema seat. And that was for your works, how you've lived your life for the Lord. In other words, there's gonna be value to your life for all of eternity when it's a life that's been used for the Lord and, and, and those things that you've done have been done with an eternal purpose. In other words, I don't wanna stand before the Lord in that day empty-handed to where that grace of God was just in vain. He didn't save us just to have us spend eternity in heaven. He saved us to use us. And he wants to work through you. And I don't want to stand before the Lord empty-handed. I want to be able to say, not works for salvation, but works that have been done to magnify Jesus and glorify Jesus and see the work of the Lord continue on in this earthly life. I want those works to be offered up to the Lord. And they're works that he says are going to be rewarded. So I don't want to stand empty-handed before him. Now, Paul brings something into this here, and he quotes from Isaiah 49, verse 8, when he says, In an acceptable time I've heard you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So in that passage, in Isaiah 49, God is speaking to Jesus and revealing that when Jesus comes, he's going to help him in that day of salvation. That day has come and gone, and that word was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave. And our salvation has now been forever complete and secure in Jesus. But now Paul's audience needs to recognize that this day of salvation is still at work. That they are living right now in this age of grace, where it's an opportunity where the good news and salvation is being offered, but you need to receive it and accept it in this day of salvation. This is the day that God is at work. Now, the means for salvation is complete, but now people need to receive that for themselves and appropriate it into their own lives through repenting of sin and putting their faith in Jesus. Now it's the day of salvation. And so Paul wants to make people clear of that, that there's no other means to be right with God. No, today is still the day of salvation that is accomplished in and through Jesus alone. And it's time to put your trust in him. Now, 
Paul's contending with people, not just for their salvation, but to live for the Lord and be used to the Lord. But now there's one thing that can potentially get in the way of people responding to this glorious gospel of God's grace. And that's the inconsistency that they can oftentimes see in other Christians. And oftentimes the inconsistency they see in fellow workers of Christ. We can all picture people that, you know, maybe we've seen on TV, these, these you know, so-called evangelists that say one thing and live entirely differently. And that can derail so many people. That's why Paul says here in verse three, we give no offense in anything. Paul says, our life is being lived in a consistent manner with what we're preaching with what we're believing, with what we're saying. Our life is matching up to it. We give no offense for anybody to say, well, you know, if that's what Christianity is all about, then I don't want anything to do with that. Now we know people that have done that. People have held up other believers and said, look at how they're living their life. If that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. The problem is they're holding up the wrong person. The only person to hold up is Jesus Christ and look at what he's done for you. Don't let other people derail you because they're sinful humanity. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to, they're going to falter. Look to Jesus Christ. But in the same way, Paul says, but I don't want to just live my life and go, oh, don't look to me. I'm just human. No, Paul says, in fact, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul lived his life in a way where he says, I want you to be able to look at my life and be able to say, man, that's what it means to be a Christian then, then I, I want that. I need that for my life. Paul didn't allow any offense in his life by living a life that was inconsistent with the message that he shared. How about you? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Are we living a life that is consistent with the word of God and with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can people see and watch your life for a 24-hour period and go, oh man, I saw Jesus there. Or are they going, oh man, I need to pray for that person. <laughs> but may we live a life that's consistent, that gives no offense in anything by which our ministry could be blamed or be an opportunity for people to say, no, I don't want that. I don't need that. If that's what it is, I don't need that. So Paul says we give no offense to anything. And regarding this ministry that we've been called to, we need to be ready to handle any surprises or challenges that may come our way. Because understand, there are those that might think, okay, I'm living my life for the Lord. I'm sold out for Him. I've committed my life to Him and, and just being used of Him. So now that means my life should be pretty comfortable. God's gonna just take care of everything. I'm living so sold out, devoted to him that, man, I shouldn't have any difficulties come my way. We can sometimes think that way, can't we? But now Paul begins to lay out for us some of the conditions in ministry and begins to reveal these things for us to see that when difficulties come, it shouldn't cause us to think, oh, God's not happy with us, 
or God's, you know, punishing us for something. No, these become opportunities, rather, for the Lord to be more greatly magnified in and through our lives. Because God can work through adverse circumstances and do a work in a greater way through it than he'd be able to do otherwise. And if we're living sold out to the Lord, surrendered to the Lord, saying, Lord, my life is yours. It's not mine. I live for the glory of God. Then we recognize even when we go through trials and tribulations, those become opportunities for God to be more glorified. And that should be to our excitement and joy, if that's what we're truly living for. So Paul lays out some of these conditions. Look at verse four with me. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience and tribulations and needs and distresses and stripes and imprisonments in tumults and labors and sleeplessness in fastings. Now, first of all, Paul never wanted to commend himself and prop up himself in a way to just receive accolades. The false apostles were doing that in Corinth. They were the ones that came on the scene and said, oh, look at us, everybody. Be more like us. We're so wonderful. We got all together. We're real. We're the true ministers of God. They pumped themselves up. Paul didn't seek to do that. But what he does say is we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Not commending themselves, but commending themselves as ministers of God. In other words, all that they did, they simply wanted to be seen as those servants of the Lord. They're not serving themselves. Paul's not carrying out this ministry to be self-serving as some people sadly have done. No, ministry is not to put yourself up on a, on a platform and, and bring all the attention accolades to you. Ministry is simply to point people to Jesus. And that word minister simply means a servant. So again, we're not talking about those people that are, you know, trained, qualified. We're talking about those that are in Christ. You're called to be a minister. And your role is simply not to commend yourself, but, but to point people to Jesus. So Paul goes over some of the things that he's had to endure now as a minister. He didn't try to circumvent those kinds of things. He didn't say, hold on a second. You know, I'm a minister of God. I should be in a five-star hotel. I should be getting all the best meals out there. I'm a minister of God. No, look at what he went through. He says, in much patience. This, now, this isn't being patient of a person that's, you know, maybe slowing you down or you're late for something. You're just having to be patient. This is patience speaking of having an endurance through difficult circumstances. It's talking about when you are going through adverse trials, you have this patient endurance that allows you to stand up under it or against it. That's what Paul means by this patience. And then he says in tribulations. I, I like this word tribulations. This is again our friend, the Greek word thalipsis. We've talked about this a lot. And that means pressing. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, that uh, you know, God comforts us in all our tribulations, in all times of 
pressure and pressing. And that word comes from, uh, you know, the Romans in this day, to get a confession onto somebody, they would lay a board over the, the chest and they'd roll a large boulder, a heavy object upon that person's chest. And they would seek to try to get that person to confess. And every time that that person would let out a breath, that weight would bear down heavier upon it, uh, upon him. And until there was such a heavy pressing, he would either confess or they would die. Paul says, welcome to the ministry. It can be at times like, this pressing, it's not always easy or comfortable. But remember what else Paul says. He says, this is a life now that we live devoted and dedicated to the Lord that is far greater, regardless of what we go through on a scale of adversity, living for the Lord under those things is far greater than a life that has all the comforts and glories apart from Christ. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light affliction, that word thalipsis, affliction, are, and he says, it's a light one, guys. It's a light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. So though there's tribulation, oh, we know it's but for a moment, and it's working out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul goes on to say, Oh, and needs, yeah, we've gone through many needs. And Paul knew what it was like to have much and to have little. He would say in, in Philippians chapter four, verse 11 to 12, he would say, not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So, He's been in need, he's been in distresses. Speaks of being in a precarious position where you feel like, I've got no other alternative. I, I, I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this. But it's precarious positions that the Lord leads us to for us to look up and go, God, you're the only one that's able to deliver me. This Greek word has tied to it the sense of a person trapped in a very confined space. And sometimes the Lord brings us to those spaces to bring us to him to say, God, you're the one that needs to do it. And again, when God delivers them out of there, Paul's been in those distresses. But guess what it did? It gave opportunity for Paul to say, if it wasn't for the Lord, I wouldn't have made it out. It gives glory to God. And in stripes, oh, Paul was so familiar with this. This speaks of the kinds of beatings and, and whippings that Paul had to endure just for being a Christian. Paul's gonna talk about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 24 to 25, where he says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. So Paul knows what it's like to go through these adverse conditions for just being a minister of God. In imprisonments, I mean, Paul did time, man. Like this guy, he was familiar with prison life. And in fact, many of his epistles, he wrote from prison. But prison didn't make him harder. Prison just continued to grow him in the grace of God and caused him to be even a greater minister of God. In tumults, this speaks of disorder and, and violent rioting. And everywhere that Paul went, I mean, every city he goes to, he's like, oh boy, batting down the hatches. Paul's arrived in town. 
Because oftentimes it led to people just getting in an uproar simply because of the gospel. Not because Paul was off, not because Paul was so bad, but because people hated to hear the truth of the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ. Think about when Paul was in Ephesus, the whole town gathered together and, and gathered in the theater. And they're just, you know, this kind of mob mentality that's just ready to take Paul out where Paul had to escape out of the city. So he's experienced tumults. He's experienced labors. He's, a, he's been a hardworking guy. Remember when he came to Corinth, he worked as a tent maker on the side just so that he wouldn't have to take uh, wages from the church, even though he was entitled to scripturally. He chose not to do it there in Corinth and he worked on the side as a tent maker in sleeplessness. I mean, we heard that he spent a night and a day in the deep. Man, you're not getting a whole lot of sleep when you're out shipwrecked in the middle of the sea when you're just trying to keep yourself from drowning or fending off sharks, whatever it might be. So he knows what it's like to be sleep depraved. I mean, that's a, a pretty heavy thing to have to endure. And not only that, but fastings as well. That was more than just voluntary fastings that Paul would do. This was involuntary fastings as well that he had to go without food. Now, how many of us would keep going in, in light of these things? Would we be going, Lord, I thought you were to provide. Why, why am I having to go through this? But God never allowed him to go through anything that God wasn't gonna be sufficient enough for him and be a help to him in the midst of it. Paul knows that full well. And that's why he can speak on these things. He's not doing it to say, oh guys, avoid the ministry at all costs, man. Look at what it brought me. He goes, no, I've been a minister of God and I would not change a thing because I've seen God at work time and time again, even in the midst of difficulties and hardships. But again, he's showing this isn't a path that he chose for himself to benefit from this list shows that it was quite the opposite. There's nothing you could pin on Paul to make him appear anything less than a true servant of Christ. And so Paul now, into verse six, he moves from the external circumstances that he contended with to share now the internal qualities that governed him. And he lists here some of the godly traits that exemplified his life and the power that was at work now through his life. So notice he says in verse six, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, and by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Paul speaks about the, the capability now for ministry. He says, I'm, I'm walking in purity. That is more speaking of chastity. And, and Paul was a man that was living holy and set apart from the world and set apart to the Lord. He had a knowledge here that he knew now what he has in Christ and, and this glorious gospel that's been given free of charge by the grace of God. Paul had a working knowledge of this that he knew, man, this is what people need to themselves know. So he's desiring to share that with others and pass this on. He was long-suffering, it said. Now remember, long-suffering, we talked about patience uh, up here in, in, verse, um, in verse four. That patience, again, was endurance under difficult circumstances. But now Paul talks about long suffering, speaking of patience with difficult people. <laughs> Guess what? In ministry, there's gonna be a times you have to encounter difficult people. I haven't encountered it here. It's not in this church. It's other churches I've heard about that have had to go through 
work with difficult people in ministry, but thankfully we've been spared from that here. But Paul's long-suffering, and in that, there's kindness. Paul recognizes the amazing kindness that God has shown to him, and Paul is desiring to pass that on to others, giving himself for others and for the sake of the gospel. And these traits here, understand something, these traits could only be afforded, could only be on display by the Holy Spirit. Please don't miss that. Because here we're talking about the capability of ministry, and the capability of ministry comes completely by the Holy Spirit that's been poured out in our lives. And I pray that you live so dependent on the Spirit that you don't even want to get out of bed until you pray, Lord, I need you today. Would you fill me afresh and anew with the Holy Spirit? Not just fill me, but overflow me. Because when the Holy Spirit is overflowing in us, guess what's going to happen? It's going to show Jesus. That's the role of the Holy Spirit that came into the world was to magnify Jesus, to testify of Christ. And when we're filled and overflowing with the Holy Spirit, the purpose there is that we might be greater ministers of the gospel, magnifying Jesus in all that we do. You can't do it on your own. These things don't come through our own natural or our own nature. Purity, knowledge, long-suffering, kindness, likes. It's through the, the Holy Spirit. Galatians makes that very clear that it's the fruit of the Spirit. But notice this, and Paul says, by sincere love. Again, that's unhypocritical love. This is a genuine love. It's a love that causes Paul to live so selflessly, that has no room for people to take offense with who he is and how he's living his life. He's died to self. He's, he's, he's living selflessly. It's sincere love. And again, that love is an outflow of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the overflowing of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, it's singular in the Greek. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Now those other things are an indication of that love. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. All these things are a outflow of love, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so Paul says here, we know that there's no ministry that can be done unless there's a, a selflessness and a sincerity of love that's, that's flowing out of the empowering and filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say, and it's by the word of truth. All that Paul spoke. Paul's not out there trying to give his own kind of feel-good message, not giving some kind of TED talk, not just saying things that he thinks, you know, the world wants to hear. He's simply sharing the word of truth, uncompromisingly, unabashedly. He just gives out the truth. Why? Because he knows it's the truth that's going to set people free. So don't be afraid to give the word of truth. Don't worry about how the, the world or the culture views what's said in the word of God. Don't try to, you know, Turn things around to fit what the culture wants to hear. Simply give the word of God. That's what Paul did. Because it's the truth that's ultimately going to set people free. Everything else aside from the word of truth is just empty. And then everything that Paul saw that was fruitful and successful, he knew well that it was by the power of God. Isn't it awesome to know that when God calls us, and uses us in the ministry 
that he's not relying upon your ability or your strength. No, he gives us the very power of God. Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Ephesians 2 would go on to say that the same spirit that raised, or sorry, Ephesians 1, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that's at work in you. We have the very power of God by which we go out into a world that we're not relying upon our ability or our strength. We're relying upon the very power of God that will lead us, speak through us, and use us. And so Paul, now knowing what he has in the Lord, notice this here. He says also, it's, it's by the armor of righteousness. The armor of righteousness. Paul knew that as he goes forth, being a minister of God, that he's clothed and wrapped in the very righteousness of God. It's a righteousness that's going to preserve him, that's going to protect him through the most adverse conditions because he knows what he has in Christ. He knows who he is in Christ. And it was this righteousness that was being like an armor to him. Nothing could knock him down or wound him. He's been made righteous through the very perfect sacrifice of Christ. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this righteousness now, Paul says, it's on the right hand and on the left. He's completely clothed in it. Someone has said, when a man is clothed in practical righteousness, he is impregnable. McDonald goes on to say, if our conscience is void of offense toward God and man, the devil has little to shoot at. So Paul knows I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but I live in a manner now where it's going to be hard for people to throw any kind of arrows of offense our way. Now, so far, we're seeing a life that's lived in just utmost integrity, aren't we? As ministers, again, our, our walk must always be lining up with our talk with the very things that we're saying and proclaiming, you need to be sure that your life is matching that. The distance between what we believe and what we say must always be getting narrower and narrower. Too many people have that gap. And they go, oh, I know. Oh, I, or they'll just kind of look at their life and go, ah, I'm just human, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm frail, I'm weak, but, you know, here's the truth. And we just kind of, allow there to be a big gap. But again, as, as ministers, with this high calling that we have, we want to see that gap narrowing and narrowing to where how we live our lives is completely lined up and integral with what we believe and what we're proclaiming. Look at Paul's character of ministry here in verse 8. He says, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. So we see these contrasts now that Paul gives. And it's not that, you know, Paul's kind of being schizophrenic here, like going, man, sometimes I'm just like, really honorable, some days I'm really dishonorable, some days, you know, I'm just giving out an evil report, some days a good report. Like, it's not that he's just kind of being all, all wishy-washy. This is Paul, it would seem, contrasting some of the accusations that his critics were throwing at him 
And again, he's contending with those at the church in Corinth that were creeping in, trying to discredit Paul's ministry. And there were people that came in and that were being very dishonorable, giving an evil report about Paul. They were deceivers. They were unknown. Um, and so Paul comes along and says, listen, we sought to live our life in honor and of good report. We've been living a, a true life and, and yet we're well known. I love this because I, I think what Paul is really contrasting here is what others might say about him, but then again, what the Lord says about him. Because we may not be, we may be unknown to some, but yet we're well known. We're well known in the eyes of the one that matters most, and that's the Lord. Paul says, we've lived a life committed, dedicated to him, surrendered to the Lord. We're being used of him. We're well known by him. And so in spite of what people might say, Paul knows who he truly is. And we continue to see some of these amazing contrasts. Though dying, people might go, oh, look at Paul. He's just a, a, a wreck, man. He's falling apart. He's dying. And yet he says, oh, no, we live. That's the work of the Lord again. We might be chastened, and yet we're not killed. Oh, we might be sorrowful at times. Paul was sorrowful over the treatment he got from some of his converts in Corinth, and yet he says we're always rejoicing. Oh, we might be seen as poor by some, yet making many rich. We know that what we're doing has greater value than any earthly riches we might have. Oh, yeah, we might have nothing, and yet we know that we're possessing all things. What beautiful contrasts these are. It's much like what Paul contrasted in chapter four, verse eight, when he says, we're hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, oh, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Paul says, in our earthly bodies, in this world, we might be experiencing some of these things, but we know what we have in Christ. Not what we're gonna have, but what we already have in Christ. And that's why Paul says, it makes it all worth it for whatever people might say or do against us. And then he says in verse 11, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. So Paul was simply coming and saying, we're, we're opening our very hearts to you. We're being transparent. We're being uh, honest and true with you. We have nothing but love for you and, and wanting to see you again growing in God's grace, that, that grace would not be in vain. But he says, any restriction that's happening is not from us. It's because of your own affections. And again, there were those false apostles in the church that were leading some of them away and, and bringing that divided heart. Their hearts were, were closed off to the things of Paul and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, this restriction is not from us. He wants them to evaluate their own hearts and receive all that he is sharing with them. And then verse 14, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord is Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I'll dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now here's a verse that is often quoted 
but do we really understand the implication or the practicality of it here for us today? See, being unequally yoked would have been a very relevant kind of picture or analogy in this day when they were relying upon having a, an animal that would be yoked to put a harness on them to, to pull a plow or any kind of you know, um, equipment for farming. That would have been very familiar in their day. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10 says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So they knew this principle of a yoke that would be placed around an animal to have them pulling something. Now, for a Jew, an ox was seen as very clean animal. A donkey was an unclean animal. But not only were they told not to plow with a donkey and an ox, but because these two animals had very different natures about them. The oxen was familiar with work and they would just, you know, pull that thing, no problem. The donkey, known to be very stubborn, doesn't want to go where you want it to go. And so if you hold them back, and if you're yoking these two things together, well, there's going to be a conflict that's going to be happening. There's going to be two natures at work that are going to be competing with each other and are going to make life very miserable for each other. That plow or that yoke, I should say, is going to become more of a noose. It's going to become irritable. It's going to rub on them and, and create chafing and, and bruising and sores. And it's going to become a very painful exercise because these two things are not equally yoked. And so Paul is carrying this into now our encounters with the world. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't enter. Now, here's the thing, guys. It's not about avoiding people because we're to be in relationship with people. We're to be in, re in relationship with people so that we can have an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. That's what we're called to do as we're seeing here as ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. But though we're to be in relationship with people, we're not to be in partnership with people that we're not equally yoked with. Now, here's something interesting. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So for us who are in Christ, we're to be taking on the yoke of Christ. And that means we're being led of the Lord. Where he goes, we want to go. But now if we enter into partnerships with people that are unequally yoked, they haven't put on that yoke of Christ. They're saying, I don't want anything to do with that. And that means that they're going to be going in a different direction. And what kind of partnership can you have with somebody that is diametrically opposed to the most important thing in your life, Jesus Christ? What kind of partnership are you going to have? And we've seen time and time again, people that have come seeking to be married and, and doing so as one of them being a believer and one of them an unbeliever, thinking, well, you know what? I know my, my fiance is not a believer, but I really believe once we get married, you know, that they're going to really be one for the Lord. And we get, you know, caught up in, you know, missionary dating. We're like, well, I know this person I'm, I'm dating right now isn't a believer, but just give me time. You know, we're going to win them into the kingdom. We're going to date them into the kingdom here, right? And yet, sadly, what happens is in those partnerships, it's 
the believer that oftentimes gets pulled into greater compromise in their life and that gets pulled further away from the Lord. And you begin to see the, the conflict and the pain that's inflicted in that relationship because you were unequally yoked. And I've heard it time and time again, people that want to get married and like, but you don't understand, we love each other. Oh, we have such a great time together. But if this person doesn't hold Jesus as the priority in their life and Jesus is the priority in your life, then you're not equally matched. You're not equally yoked and you should have nothing to do with them in the realm of a partnership of marriage. That's so important. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And it's going to create a pain. I've seen time and time again, people have come together in those partnerships and years down the road, struggling and miserable and going, I should have listened. I should have listened. But here, Paul gives a very clear instruction and counsel, especially to the people in Corinth that he's addressing that were beginning to move into partnerships with those that weren't truly in Christ and were getting pulled away from the truth by these people. Don't be unequally yoked. Now, what's interesting here is we see in our passage these nouns that are, are, are being used here, what fellowship, what communion, what accord, what part. These are all nouns used to speak of having something in common. See, when you enter into a specific relationship or a partnership like marriage or in a, a business practice, you wanna make sure you have things in common. And the most important thing in your life, which is Jesus, you should have in common with something that you're doing a pretty serious partnership with. Now what's interesting is that word accord is the Greek word symphonesis. Where we get our word? Anybody? Symphony, you got it. Symphony. How many people have been to a symphony before? All right, great. I was dragged to one. I mean, I went to one uh, one time with my wife. I went with my wife because we're equally yoked, and so we decided, okay, baby, I'm gonna go there. So into symphony. Not my not my cup of tea, but I was blown away by it. It was it was a beautiful thing. But in the beginning of every symphony, what do you have happen? You have all the people come out and they tune up their instruments. And it's like, you're going, oh my goodness, I hope they get better, right? <laughs> it's not pleasant. They're all doing their own thing. But the minute they all begin to take their cues from their maestro, is that what it is? Remember, it's just one symphony I've been in, just one. So maestro, <laughs> thank you. Conductor, maestro. When they begin to take their cues from the conductor and the maestro, all of a sudden they're in sync. And there's a beautiful symphonic sounds of harmony and melodies that just sound so wonderful together. They're all maybe doing different things, but it's blending together because they're being equally yoked under the direction of their conductor. That's what Paul is designing here, that, that without being equally yoked, what kind of accord, what kind of symphony are you going to have? Your, your partnerships are going to be more like that symphony tuning up where it's all over the place. 
But that's not what God intends. But for us to experience what God intends, we need to follow the instructions that God has for us. And notice the blessings that come out of this. Oh, first of all, again, I mean, here's why we need to be different than the world. Because you are the temple of the living God. This is huge, guys. The temple of the living God. We just finished going through Exodus on Wednesdays and we talked a lot about the tabernacle. Tabernacle was to be holy and set apart. Everything that was done for the tabernacle was to be completely holy and set apart. It's not that those vessels were so special and thus they became holy. No, they were holy because they were special. They had a special use set apart for God. But think about the tabernacle. Only the priest could go into the tabernacle and only the high priest one day of the year could go into the very holy of holies of the tabernacle. And the same with the temple. But now Paul says, guys, you who are in Christ, you are now the temple of the living God. How many people from Israel would have longed to be just near the tabernacle, just near the presence of God? And yet now we get to experience the very presence of God in us as the temple of the living God. He comes and he makes himself available to us. He comes and he draws near to us who are drawing near to him and setting ourselves apart to him. So we're called to be set apart from the world because we're the temple of the living God. But as we set ourselves apart to God, he draws near to us. Notice, look at the promises that we see here. When he says, come out from among them and be separate. Now, first of all, being separate does not mean isolation. As Christians, we're not to avoid the world. You don't see a non-believer coming and start running the opposite direction. Ah, oh, get away from me. I gotta be separate. Separation does not mean isolation. No, we're, we're talking about not being like the world, being different than the world. We're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. So we're to come out, we're to be separate. But notice this. Here's the promise to receive. I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. We receive special relationship with God as we set ourselves apart, as we become separate from the things of the world, as we live as that temple of the living God. The blessings that flow are immense and wonderful, but they're blessings that we're to share with the world as ministers of reconciliation, being ambassadors for Christ to see many come to know him. We have an incredible calling my friends every single one of us as ministers of God but know the marks of ministry it's not always easy but God is with us God leads us through and God uses each of those things for his glory which is what we ultimately as ministers of God should be living for all right worship team would you come up we're going to close in prayer we're going to wrap up with a, a song as we just come and focus once more on the Lord and, and let's pray for the Lord to plant these things in our heart and to begin to lead us on as ministers of God. Let's stand together. So Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. God, we need you. And we're thankful for your spirit that enables and equips us, the power of God that's available to us. And Lord, we want to live these lives as effective ministers of reconciliation. You've called us to this and what a privilege it is. So may we take all that we've received from you, that it wouldn't be in vain, but that we'd use it now 
to demonstrate a life that's in Christ and the blessings we have and to share that with other people now. Use us, Lord. We ask in your name, amen.